This is a Glass Box Media Podcast. Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Welcome to the Blank Podcast, the podcast where we talk to well-known people about their lives, their careers, and those difficult moments along the way. I'm Giles Poe Phillips, and a merry, happy, joyful new year to you, Jim Daly. It's 2022. It is. It's 2022, the second day of 2022, the third. I'm losing count. Uh, Yes, happy new year to you. Happy new year to our listeners, of course. We hope that you had a good Christmas slash holiday break, whatever you celebrate. And had, were able to see your family, firstly, because I know a lot mm-hmm. of people weren't because of COVID spreading, certainly here in the UK, um, and had a relaxing time. Maybe you watched lots of Christmas Hallmark movies, which is what my wife and I did. As, as, oh, my we wife did that as well. I, I avoided mm-hmm. those, thankfully. They, uh, Charles, I cannot recommend them enough because you're probably avoiding them because they're bad movies. Yeah. And I can 100% confirm. They are awful movies. Yeah, that's why. But I the can't whole deal point, <laughs> no, the whole point is to take the piss out of them. That's why uh, you watch them. Okay. You watch them to find the stupid tropes, the terrible dialogue, the awful acting, and it's a weird bonding exercise for you and your partner watching these. <laughs> and actually, actually, there's something really comforting about watching these crap movies. You don't have to concentrate. It's not like a Netflix drama where I have to rewind every ten seconds because mm. I missed something important. You can relax, have it on the background. They're terrible movies. It's comforting. And it's just a very nice way to just relax, take yourself out of whatever stresses are happening and just chill out for a bit. Yeah, I think Michelle might get upset if I just sat there like ranting at how shit it is. <laughs> but they are. Objectively, they are terrible. But that's the fun. And also, like, they all use, especially the Netflix ones, but actually, and Hallmark, Hallmark Channel, but I think they've now sold them to Channel 5 or something. They all use the same actors. Yeah. The same three actors in every movie. So you're like, oh, they were in the last one. What, they were they were in that one. So it's, uh, yeah, I can I, I recommend them highly. It's uh, it's good fun. Yeah, I, it's funny, isn't it? I th- I'm sure I've come in, I think Shell was doing some cooking and she was watching one on her tablet and I came in and I, was, I started kind of going, oh, being snarky about it, you know, like as a... Because, you know, I like see myself as being a bit of a film buff <laughs> and uh, being like, yeah, doing a sort of Mark Commode review of it. <gasps> and, uh, we need to ask Mark, previous <laughs> guest, what he thinks of Hallmark movies. I should I, think I, he hates yeah, them. He probably hates them. But yeah. if you oh, imagine if he loves them, we need to ask him. Well, we can find out his opinion on... Because oh, also Netflix has started doing their own now. Netflix has started doing their yeah. own Hallmarky style movies because mm. they know they're popular called... Like a few years ago, it was the Christmas Prince, then the Christmas Prince 2, and then the Christmas Switch. And they're all set in these made-up 
northern European, and I'm doing quote marks yeah, yeah. here, northern European countries called Aldovia <laughs> and Cordovia. And like weirdly, they all they all um exist in the same realm, but they're sort of, they're sort of like I guess sort of like Germany, Holland, that there's literally maps and they're sort of placed into the snow, central, obviously. Loads of snow. Yeah, so yeah. so actually maybe it's more towards Scandinavia, but for some reason they So the, the actors from that region. No, so the actors are all yeah, no, they're all European. Oh, sorry, okay. sorry. They're all American. They're all American. Yeah, yeah, and they're yeah. all doing terrible. Because what accent would you think that the people that lived in Central Europe have? Like, you might have a sort of... What, what would you think? Well, yeah, do? I think, like, I would say, like, German, Dutch type. Yeah. yeah they're, like, they're, like, you know how... Or the Europeans... even, even Bel- like, French. Like, a slight yeah. French-Belgium accent, but, maybe. But, but in English, because all the Europeans speak English fantastically. Yeah. So you do, can imagine yeah. what maybe sort of like a pan-European accent would be. Mm. Uh, speaking English. No, what they're doing is terrible posh British accents for literally no reason. <laughs> and so it's fun picking those apart and mm. it's just trying to work out what some, some of the actors you're like, that's a terrible British accent. And you Google him like, he's British. What is he doing? <laughs> that's just his voice. That's, that's rubbish. <laughs> so anyway, I can okay, yeah, so what, recommend them. What, for the, for the sort of biggest piss taking session, what would be the best one to go for? I would say the Netflix, Anything on Hallmark, which I think are now on, you can watch on Five Player on Channel Five. So mm. any of like, and they're all got terrible names like the Christmas shoe and a festive bottle. Like they're all, they're awful <laughs> names. But Netflix has started doing their own yeah yeah. Style I think of it's them. the Netflix ones that yeah, which are slightly watched. better quality in terms of production. But what mm. they've done very cleverly is they've kept them shit. So they've kept the dialogue rubbish, and so they kept that sort of feel of the Hallmark movie, but it's like better production values and. Mm. That, that is def- the Christmas Prince, I think, is one, and the Christmas Switch are two, which have both had a couple in their little franchise. Yeah, um, are are the ones that are worth. So watching I guess there's like a, yeah. a checklist for those kind of movies when they're sort of in the. I'm yes. just thinking in the production boardroom, they're saying yeah. we need we need a, an A list that it's dropped off the map, right? In it, <laughs> we need it to be set at Christmas. We need terrible accents. Yeah. It needs to be really shit. Yeah, well, uh, the A-listers you've got. So, in the Christmas Prince, it's the it's the girl that was in um, I Zombie, Rose McIver, who's okay. a very good who's a very good actor, but mm. she is the main lead in that, and some random British guy, um, or not British guy, I can't remember, but either way, bad accent. And then in the Christmas Switch is Vanessa Hutchins, who's another a very another very good yeah, act, yeah. actor, but play. In fact, in the most recent Christmas Switch, it's called like the Christmas Switch again. Te- like you know how like Die Hard used to have those te- like each each name got worse. <laughs> the Christmas Switch with a vengeance. Um, she plays three different characters. Like literally the plot is like, Oh, we found another long lost twin and it's just her in a different hat. It's so oh, brilliant. But, but you gotta watch them. They're okay. Brilliant. Well, uh, thank you for that recommendation. <laughs> yeah, you're welcome. Um, yeah. I've m- mainly been watching more highbrow stuff than that. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. um, thank you. It's a wonderful life. Yeah. White yeah. Christmas. yeah. <laughs> but well, yeah, let our listeners let us know if you've been watching, um, terrible movies over Christmas period and what some of your favorite terrible movies are. Definitely. Yeah. Please tweet us at blank pod and let us know what your, yeah, because I just find them really comforting. I just, mm. I, it's a weird sort of comfort yeah, thing to do. So let us know whether you prefer highbrow or very, very lowbrow Christmas movies. Um, yeah. At blank pod, let us know. Well, I was going to say, I mean, I guess the, the, the main crux of all these movies is romance, right? And, um, just to, as a brilliant segue into our, our wonderful guest this week is our guest this week is Rosie Wilby, who is a comedian and a writer. Uh, and her book 
that we talked about quite uh, quite some extent in the podcast is called the breakup monologues, which is obviously mm-hmm. the opposite of of romance and uh, yeah, and 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 well, it's her, part of it. It's well, it is. It's part of the journey, isn't it? Yeah, of yeah. course. And and I think she calls herself a serial monogamist. You know, had gone through several relationships that you know, and uh, and and does a kind of, I guess, a high fidelity style look back, a, a retrospective on on those relationships and how it came to be and how they came to not be. And she does a podcast about it as well, and it's the unexpected joy of heartbreak. And I know she talks to various guests about their heartbreaks and those moments. And it's a fascinating book. I mean, we talked about all different aspects of it, but uh, you know, just going back into the looking at ghosting, like all the different phrases. Is for ghosting. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. We we learned uh, this was quite a sort of an educational journey for us, wasn't it? We learned all the different sort of phrases relating to to ghosting and stuff around that. Um, Rosie's very open, very upfront about her relationships and her personal life, and that makes for a very engaging episode. Um, I mean, some of it gets very fruity, um, yeah, very interesting. And, and actually, I could have sort of listened to Rosie for hours because it was actually a sort of a kind of. Mm look into a world that I obviously know because I've been in relationships and had my heart broken and stuff, but actually I learned a lot, a lot about it. And I think heartbreak is interesting because we, I mean, we talk about it in our book as well, blank, mm. how to falter and fail and get, pick yourself up again. Nice. Little nice. Plug there. Um, <laughs> but it's a form of grief and yeah. you know, it can be sort of related to lots of different life situations. So it was, uh, yeah, this is a really interesting episode of Rosie who also, as you said, is very, very open, but incredibly funny and very easy to talk to. So, uh, yeah, I think our listeners can enjoy this one. Yeah, it's really, really fascinating. And like you say, quite fruity at times. You know, Rosie gave herself up to science and did a sex lab. Um, so, right. yeah, it's really, it's honestly... It's, um, Which I think is the next movie in the Hallmark Christmas movie <laughs> franchise. Christmas sex lab. The Christmas sex lab. <laughs> <laughs> I might oh, watch we that one. Pitch that. We should pitch that one oh, to, to Netflix. That's a, yeah. that's a definite. Yeah. And if not, we can get on Babe Station or something probably with it. Someone will take Channel 5 will take that. They yeah. take anything. They, they take they literally love it. anything. I think Channel oh, 4 would. Channel 4 probably would, actually. Yeah. yeah, you could play it after Naked Attraction. Exactly. That's a weird right. show. <laughs> it's a very weird show. Chat, well, we'll go, look, we'll, we'll crack on with the episode. Before uh, before we do that, yeah, let's sorry. read out a couple of tweets from our, from our lovely listeners. Um... So, hang on, I've picked one out here. Where are we? Here we go. Okay. Um, this is from at Magical Abby. Hello, Abby, and thank you for your tweet. And uh, she says, going back to my lovely, relaxing bedtime routine of catching up with Blankboard one episode at a time, tonight is episode 17. Mm. Uh, and I actually replied to her because that was the Julia Bradbury episode. Oh, yeah, Julia. Fantastic episode. Yeah. I didn't realise that we got Julia on so early in our journey. But no, that, I did. Really... I thought it was, yeah, I know. It's funny when you get back and you think, oh, yeah, we had some big hitters. For that was Because re- I remember recording that in um, in uh, Nordic Bar in, in town. But um, Well, there was a lot of anyway, banging and crashing in that That's one. right. And she went over to the building. Yeah. She was like, sorry, can you stop? <laughs> it's great when the guest takes yeah, takes ownership we don't. we're not very confrontational so we're just like oh it'll be fine we'll edit it out later um anyway and abby replied and said uh, i've thoroughly enjoyed every episode so far but it will take me ages to catch up well abby i mean you sent that on december 16th so i'm hopefully by now mm. i'm guessing you might be up to i don't know episode 25 30 maybe let us know where you are now in in the journey of your blank episode yeah it'd be lovely to hear where you are i've got one here from vicky 
Uh, she said, I'm listening to Blank Pod chronologically. So it's another person that's going back and listening to them all again. Oh, which is amazing. Um, I've reached Giles and Jim talking to Sophia Miles. Such a powerful podcast. I feel quite emotional after it. Thank you for being so candid. And it's lovely, actually, that the conversation goes on and Sophia talks to her as well. So they go, have a little back and forth all about mental health and, and how they feel about the world and stuff. So, yeah, really lovely that, you know, the guest was engaging with the listener there. So that's really nice as well. That, we've had that a few times, haven't mm. we? Where, where our guests have engaged, and we're very lucky. We get those kind of people on who are who are just nice people, and mm. who on the same sort of bandwidth, I think, as our listeners, and so they understand where people are. And, and Sophia is fantastic. I mean, that was a very raw episode mm. with her, but it was. Uh, I think it was actually probably one of our most life changing episodes for our listeners. We've had so many people mm. talk to us about how that touched that touched them that episode. So. So thank you, Vicky, for your tweet. And thank you, Sophia, as well, for just being a fantastic person in yeah. general. You know, we love her loads. We really, really do. Yeah. Um, and I would recommend listening to that episode. I don't know what number it is, but I'd recommend listening to that one because it's uh, it's a very powerful, mm. powerful episode. Yeah. Great. Well, we should crack on with this powerful episode. Nicely done. So this is the one and only Rosie Wilby. You're just getting so good at this now. Not really, because I got, got tongue-tied as I was doing it. So it wasn't that great. Oh, I enjoyed it. it good was job good. we leave all uh, these blank bits in. Well, that's the whole part. That's the whole part of the podcast, isn't it? Um, yeah, sorry, right, listeners. We when we fuck up, you have to listen to it. Well, exactly. We can't. We can't call it the blank podcast and then just like edit out all the errors and make it like all smooth and perfect. That mm. would be going off brand, wouldn't it? Which, yeah, but I guess if you're a new listener, you're probably thinking these guys are shambolic. <laughs> they're 150 pods in. They've got a clue what they're doing. And you're right. You're absolutely right. <laughs> anyway, after Giles' fantastic little link there, which we've both <laughs> now screwed up. <laughs> Uh, this is the one and only Rosie Wilby on the Blank Podcast. We'll dive in if that's okay with you. Perfect. <laughs> Let's dive. <laughs> so it reminds me, dive. actually, I once um, did appear on stage with Tom Daly. Talking of diving in. <gasps> really? Yes, because oh. we're both... What's he like? Oh, an absolute sweetie. We're both patrons of lovely. a charity called Switchboard, which is an LGBTQ charity. Yeah. Oh, good. Yeah, he seems absolutely lovely. And very good at knitting. <laughs> yes. Amazing at knitting, yeah. He didn't do any knitting when <laughs> I met him. I did make a quite <laughs> naughty joke about diving. <laughs> and, <lesbians>. <laughs> <laughs> and he was very good humored about it <laughs> oh that's good he, he's one of my people on my list of celebs i want to be a nice person yeah so that's, oh, that's, that's nice, like oh, it's nice when nice people that well that you perceive to be nice are nice in real life that yeah i mean i, I haven't met any i mean obviously doing this podcast we haven't met any divas yet but <laughs> I, I imagine it'd be i'd be, just be that'd be <laughs> crushing i think to meet one of your heroes and then them not to be nice yeah oh yeah hasn't happened yet <laughs> um i did oh, I, I shouldn't say this should i if i if i'm saying someone's not nice i did have an experience where years ago when i was a musician i supported bob geldof on a tour date at uh, oxford okay, yeah. playhouse and because of everything bob geldof has done I thought he would just be this amazing, kind, wonderful person, but he didn't. And, you know, I'd had lots of different 
experiences of supporting people and Midyore had once made me a cup of tea in his dressing room um, <laughs> and he was an absolute sweetie and I thought Bob would be like that as well but he didn't actually come and speak to me and my keyboard player mm. at all and just I think we passed uh. him in a corridor and he sort of grunted and <laughs> that was it so uh. yeah you know so yeah but. yeah it's funny actually I think I've I've been in the music industry a bit and music's a bit different. I think people are on the cool kind of train quite a lot of the time. Yeah. And actually to, to, <laughs> to, to, to mingle with the support acts. It's, it's not a bit always beneath the them. thing. Yeah. I think I've found that with being a support band that the, the, the main acts are, can be a bit sniffy towards the, yeah, yeah. the, the minions that are, yeah yeah it's funny it's, I don't find that in other industri- creative industries but certainly in the music industry that I've noticed that quite oh, a lot oh well there we are mm. it's, it's weird though isn't it because I guess like when you meet celebs or, or it's funny actually I, I always assumed Bob Geldof was quite cantankerous so that actually does marry up with my, with my, with my understanding yeah. of him maybe unfairly or maybe not given yeah. your story um, but you never know when you meet when you meet anyone, did you? But especially celebs and stuff, they might be having a bad day, or like something might yeah. have happened, or like you never know what's going on in people's lives at that moment. I guess when you come into their life, yeah. so there's loads of variables, I guess, isn't there? When you sort of meet oh, people, absolutely, still disappointing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's true, actually. And I think actually, gigging's quite can be quite stressful. Oh, it's really stressful. Oh my goodness! Yeah. Actually, at that. Um, fateful tour date we we got clamped as well outside oxford oh, playhouse no. <laughs> oh no oh i was gonna say i, th- I think our gig went fine but i think we just felt a bit i don't know it was one of those weird nights where you don't really feel yeah. present in it that that much and i think you know the audience were not you know, or some of them hadn't even turned up yet when we went on, like, really early. <laughs> it just felt yeah, like, oh, you know, was it worth it for our no, very, no, very really. tiny support fee? <laughs> and then getting clamped, which would have cost more than, <laughs> more than our fee. Than what you got, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> my worst gig experience in London was we played The Underworld in Camden, in my old band, and it was a, it was a crap gig. I think there's only, like, literally six or seven people there. Yeah. It was a terrible night. It was working with a new promoter who promised the world but uh. delivered nothing. Um, we all jumped in our unmarked white van on the way home and um, got stopped on Westminster Bridge of all places by the armed police. Um, we assumed it was because three of us were in the back of the van, um, <laughs> you know, in a transit, which we shouldn't have been. Um, but it turned out they thought we might have been terrorists. Um, oh, Because we were in a unmarked white van. And they got all, we had to get all the stuff out. So all the drum kit, all the amps, everything. Um, they searched the van and then, and then they left. Um, so we had to put all, on Westminster Bridge, really busy, like loads yeah. of traffic. And then we found out we had a puncture as well. Uh, <laughs> <no>. <laughs> it was disastrous. Oh, that was one of the worst nights ever. I have to say. And then they said, you're not terrorist, but your music is a form of terrorism. Yes. Noise terror. Uh, (laughs) Now, Rosie, I want to talk to you about um, your book, The Breakup Monologues, which is fantastic, but I've been reading it um, the last few days. And what also wanted to talk to you about the fact that, you know, you talk to people about breakup a lot. And I 
was watching the um, this TV this morning, and Alice Evans was on, who's had quite a public breakup with her husband, um, the actor Ian Graffold. Oh yes, yes, I did read yeah. about that. Yes, that's yeah, right, and, and she's um, not been too happy about it no very public about yeah very public and very very public on social media about about it and um yeah and and obviously it was very heartbreaking watching her talking about it and i and i wondered actually do you find obviously you're you're talking about breakups with people a lot of the time do you find you have an emotional it has an emotional impact on you um sometimes when you're doing the podcast and stuff do you uh (laughs) is there an emotional takeaway for you Yeah, I mean, I suppose the danger about talking about breakups is that, yes, you've kind of made yourself an unofficial, accidental therapist Mm -hmm. and you are hearing people's painful stories. Um, Although I think my work um, around breakups has been very much looking at the positive side, the joyful outcomes that can come after a breakup when we can sort of harness that weird febrile energy of heartbreak and actually start to transform and reinvent ourselves and start new projects create new relationships and friendships and connections and actually get back to the things that we need that we may have lost sight of a bit during a partnership a relationship so I I do think there is a good side you know celebratory side eventually (laughs) after the dust has settled of breakups and that's very much what I've been looking at and the breakup monologues forms very much the final part of a whole body of work looking at relationships and thinking more consciously about them and how we connect and disconnect and how we can do that maybe a bit more kindly than ghosting and so on (laughs) um yeah yeah interestingly enough I was reading a um, bit about ghosting and the the, the subgenres of ghosting yeah, <laughs> I was yeah. saying to Jim before we came on like the caspering and the submarining and orbiting um, how did you find out about all these different because I had no idea about all these kind of no, sub, sub levels yeah well yes I started researching the language of breakups the lexicon of breakups for um, there's a radio 4 podcast called the boring talks and i was told mine might not be boring enough actually <laughs> but i just what a compliment yeah, yeah, yeah. i just slipped in interesting, yeah. <laughs> and so because um, i pitched this idea about the let's kind of breakups because i was aware i'd obviously heard of ghosting and then started hearing a few more like curving and benching and then started looking into it a lot more for this particular <laughs> podcast episode and yeah submarining is fun that's when you ghost someone and pop up again and then my favourite variant on ghosting is marleying, where you just pop up again at Christmas. <laughs> in time for a little Christmas fling. So, yeah, it's it's bizarre, isn't it, that all these new behaviours have been maybe facilitated by technology, by the apps, mm. by Tinder and, and so on, and do those kind of apps that feel a bit like games do they allow for this behavior where we see potential love matches as as very disposable players in that game um it really perhaps changes the way the way we think about connection and dating although i I know some historians would say that behaviors like ghosting have always existed because you Mm. might arrange to meet somebody and then just not turn up and stand them up in real life which is perhaps worse if there's somebody just waiting there at the restaurant (laughs) or in the pub well yeah then you could never get in contact with 
unless you wrote a letter, I guess. There was literally <laughs> no way of carrying Or turn up at their front door, carry, yeah, smoke signals or something. And there's no... Uh, proper, uh, proper, was proper ghosting back in the it day, was, wasn't it? Yeah, it really could tonight. disappear. It's, it's not so easy. Yeah. Now, <laughs> Shopping for clothes can be a hassle. Website images can be misleading. You never know how much will fit. And there's just so much choice. Let Stitch Fix do all the hard work for you. In a world of small, medium and large, you might be a medium or a marge. That's roughly where I am, to be honest. Or maybe you can't find anything that fits right. Get the perfect fit with Stitch Fix. I was going to say a... a a schmedium, I can't even say that. A schmedium <laughs> or a marge. Um, yeah, I think I was that for a long time, but now I'm just, I'm just a large. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm definitely a, uh, a marge, I think. And lockdown has, um, has aided, aided that move. I have to say, Giles, um, I'm so glad Stitch Fix are sponsoring us because I have been using Stitch Fix for the last year or so during lockdown and it has been an absolute godsend. They are brilliant. Um, I'll tell you a bit about how it works. Basically, you sign up, you enter in all your details as to what size you are, what styles you like, your sort of sartorial choices. And then every month or two months, three months, depending on what you choose, you get a box with five items. You try them on. If you like them, you pay for them. If you don't, you send them back free of charge. And during lockdown, when getting to the shops has obviously been not possible and then slightly anxiety-inducing for someone like me, being able to buy these clothes online has been an absolute breeze. And I've bought quite a lot of items from Stitch Fix. It's really nice quality. It fits well which is another problem with buying online. Normally, you buy something and it tends to be in the wrong size. Um, and I've just been incredibly pleased with them. So I cannot recommend Stitch Fix enough. Yeah, I feel someone like me that finds um, buying clothes quite tricky sometimes. I never know what combinations are going to work well. Um, and this sounds like, you know, they do it for you. Absolutely. And you get a stylist. You get your personal stylist. Oh. And they pick out these items for you and they pick what would work for you. And, um, yeah, it's been, it's been fantastic. It has taken, for me, the anxiety of buying clothes online completely out of the equation. So I'm a big fan. Stitch Fix is an online personal styling company that makes getting clothes you love effortless. It's a completely different way to shop. That's all about you every time. To get started, go to stitchfix.co.uk slash blank to set up your profile and they'll deliver great looks personalised just for you in your colours, styles and budget. You pay a £10 styling fee for each fix, which is credited towards everything you keep and you'll get 20% off when you keep everything in your fix. You can schedule at any time, there's no subscription required, plus shipping returns and exchanges are easy and free. This is the bit I love the most, Jim. Stitch Fix does the hard work for you, making great style effortless for men and women. Absolutely. I have to say as well, my wife Miranda is also uh, subscribed to Stitch Fix as well. So we are both, we are big Stitch Fix fans in the Door Daily household. Get started today at stitchfix.co.uk slash blank. That's stitchfix.co.uk slash blank. So what? Sorry, just, you mentioned two more: benching and curving, curveball, curving. <laughs> curve sorry, curveball. Curve that's that, that, yeah. that, that sounds even. That sounds. <laughs> yeah. That sounds another game. Yeah, uh, curving. Uh, yeah, I mean, curving is sort of swerving. You know, um, and they're all kind of similar uh, okay. things. Benching is a bit like 
when you put someone on, on the bench, as in a sort of sporting analogy. Um, I right, kind yes. of keep okay. him in there, maybe, you know, as, <laughs> yeah. a, as a kind of secondary option, a sort of substitute <laughs> yeah. option. Super yeah, sub. exactly. Um, and there's a, another one, Icing, which is similar again to that. So, yeah. But, yeah, and orbiting is where you do disappear but you still like someone's posts on social media and you still <laughs> yeah. you still look at what they're doing <laughs> in their orbit <laughs> yeah, in their orbit but you're not interested in being in their real life so <laughs> that one seems quite a cruel cool one because yeah. well, they're all cruel but that um, is a bit cruel yeah, well, yeah, the fact yeah, that yeah. you're sort of engaging but on a on a low level um yeah that's is, a bit unfair. yeah but actually not responding to messages or whatever that that's that seems pretty yeah that's pretty harsh i think yeah, <laughs> oh, they're all they're, you, they're all harsh. Uh, they're all harsh. Do you, do you think actually it's quite interesting? Like obviously, like I'm a, I'm laughing along with the terms and stuff. They are funny, but I think they they do serve a purpose, don't they? Because I, I think when you're going through those moments and someone's doing that to you, I think it is nice to have that description of it. That I guess sort of helps you process what's, what's happen- actually happening. I to suppose you. so, and you can feel like you're not alone because you know that ghosting is something that happens to people, and that people say, "Oh, I've been ghosted." But I don't know. I sort of argue in my book that ghosting, you know, giving all these behaviours, cutesy, fun names, perhaps legitimises them and, and gives people the idea mm. and, and they can think, oh, well, I can, yeah. just, I can just ghost this person rather than actually mm. go through an awkward conversation of telling them that I'm not that interested, which sometimes is, is quite tricky or difficult to, to say. That's true. And, yeah. and it's a, I hadn't thought yeah, of it and it's amazing yeah. actually just a, 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 a frank conversation how much that can help with most things you know in life if you have a frank con- and it's not you know some people find it difficult to have frank mm. conversations and frank conversations are can be very difficult especially if you're breaking up with someone but actually so much so much heartache can be avoided with a conversation um, between two people um, and actually, yeah, it's a shame that we have to go to those <laughs> extremes sometimes to uh, to get out of stuff. Yeah, <laughs> I agree. You always, sorry, Rosa, you always feel better though, don't you? After like, I, I'm 100 percent not someone that like enjoys confrontation and and uh, those difficult conversations. Like, I just, I, I'm actually sweating a little bit just even thinking <laughs> about it. Um, we, and I'm in a happy, I'm happily married, so <laughs> thankfully never going to have to have that conversation. But it's um. You do, it's a bit like sort of, in a way, I guess, like sort of going to counselling or therapy or, or even just telling someone how you feel. You always feel better, you know, even when you've had this horrible conversation or you've had to like confront your builder because the work's not been good or whatever. Yeah. You always feel better than carrying it around. So, yeah, I'm not quite sure what my point is here apart from that. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's good it's to talk. It's good to talk. As Bob yeah, Hoskins say, famously once yeah. said. Yeah, yeah. I th- I, you know, and communication is really key. And that's been, a, I suppose, a key message that I've tried to get across in my comedy shows and in the podcast and, and both of my books. Because I think I was just saying earlier that the breakup monologues was part of this um, trilogy of comedy shows. It came after that. Um, I had a show called The Science of Sex and then one called Is Monogamy Dead, which became my first book. And then a solo show all about my own breakup, which sort of morphed into the the breakup monologues, which was a a live chat show and then the podcast and then eventually a book. Um, But when I was researching the middle part of that trilogy, all about monogamy and fidelity and cheating, it became clear how little so many of us can communicate about really complex 
you know, themes around our boundaries and around what we feel is okay for our partners to be thinking or feeling or doing or or not, what some of the things we're not comfortable with. And so for many couples, 50% of people who responded to a survey that I conducted actually didn't discuss monogamy and what it actually means. <laughs> Whereas I think it, mm. it means different things to different people. So we should be discussing it because I also asked in that survey, what counts as cheating? And the answers were were very different for different people. For many people, it was a purely physical thing and whether their partner had had sex with somebody else or kissed somebody else. And for some other people, it was really more about the emotional spectrum of, of fidelity and mm. whether they fell in love with somebody else. Mm. And I guess that sort of, you question what a relationship is. Is it purely a physical thing yeah. you know and obviously uh, that's another level to it or is it just that you're you're having a close connection with someone and what how does that blur the the boundaries i guess or, or in people's perceptions of what monogamy is yeah yeah exactly and i i do think our definitions of relationships are very much focused around sex in a really hyper sexualized society and i think we think as soon as you start having sex with somebody you're in a relationship and as soon as you stop you're not whereas of course we know that <laughs> that's not the case at all mm. like many of us are still in very loving partnerships and for whatever reason you know, we, we've lost some of that sexual fizz that we had at the beginning and that's chemically and hormonally what does happen and that's perfectly natural and normal. But it's just interesting the way we define our orientations as heterosexual or homosexual, whereas, you know, I think I'm a homoromantic yeah. and my drive towards women is, is a romantic drive. And in the book I talk about going into this weird sex lab experiment where... <laughs> I'm, I'm wired well, we'll, up. We all set up. <laughs> <laughs> I'm wired up to all these machines whilst watching erotica, or well, so they think erotica. Mm. Um, and so the images of men and women pleasuring themselves and and so they're sort of measuring your arousal and I'd always wanted to do mm. one of these experiments because I'd read about them and I thought what a strange and funny experiment to take part in and write about but also I think it's very interesting how sometimes our you know kind of animal primal desires don't always marry up with our more conscious labels and mm. definitions we put on ourselves and around our our kind of our desires and, and who we think we are and so you know in this experiment as I as as with with most women I was sort of equally aroused or or not aroused <laughs> whichever <laughs> you know I don't know which way you want to look at it um, by men or women and particularly as these were, these were random men and women that I, you know, I'm not really somebody who sits and looks at porn. Um, this is an interesting conversation for Thursday yeah. morning, isn't it? <laughs> um, <laughs> um, but, you know, I think my connection to people is all about, you know, who they are and what they're about and what they have mm. to say and what they think, what their ideas are. Um, it's more cerebral and intellectual than a purely kind of physical animal instinct um even though of course you know that is a part of our sexuality and our sexual drive as well but i think these things are complex and i think for me mm. it is more a romantic drive that takes priority whereas i don't think we 
necessarily define things around that in the way that we have relationships because we we structure our relationships largely around having you know one sexual partner and having other connections around that that might be important like romantic or platonic friendships but I think friendship can be very very romantic so I think that's where it can get quite confusing Mm. yeah and I guess that is that is fascinating sorry no no no, I was gonna say I guess also we've I mean I guess people have been thinking about that more or being more open to different types of relationship. We've seen like polyamorous relationships have become more mainstream, I guess. Yeah. You know, you know, I've seen several documentaries about polyamorous relationships and that seems to be a more, uh, not, not mainstream, but it seems to be more, you know, people are engaging in those kind of relationships more. It's more talk. There's, Charles, about. there's a poly. Yeah. There's a polyamorous relationship on Neighbours currently. Ooh. Is there? Oh, well, okay. I haven't watched Neighbours for a long time. Well, yeah. there we go. Down at Lassiter's. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah, I can't remember who the characters are. No, it's Amy who's come back. I don't really watch it, but my, my wife and my, her mum watch it. But Amy that's come back now has two boyfriends and it's one of the sort of main storylines. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, so that's, and I'm, yeah, glad, I'm yeah. glad they've done it that way round, where it's a woman mm. who's sort of driving it. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's nice to see that because that is actually often the case within the mm. poly community that I started immersing myself in a bit for this book and started going to sex positive events and poly groups and um, did comedy at a sex party, which is another did of my oh, wow. fun immersive experiences. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, and I found that there were lots of women who were really thriving in that environment and being able to kind of own it and own their sexuality and sort of speak freely about their desires. Because we do find in a ton of surveys that women are more likely to feel restless um, or get bored, dare I say, with the same partner. And so all these kind of cultural myths that we have about men being these Mm. cheating, roaming rogues, Mm. (laughs) you know, are not really (laughs) correct at all because women are, you know, not wired so much for monogamy either. You know, if you look uh, into the animal community and you see tons of promiscuous species, like I talk a bit about bonobos and and how that's a matriarchal society because the females are all having sex with each other and having a great time. So they all help one another out. (laughs) (laughs) I'm learning so much in this episode. (laughs) It's fascinating. It's amazing, actually. Yeah, because I was going to say, the the documentaries I've seen, it's been very much more um, the polyamorous um, or, uh, relationships have been driven more by the woman and it's or female and yeah. they've been, you know, yeah, having several male partners. Um, that's interesting. Yeah, that's really interesting that there is some more kind of anthropological kind of reason for that. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, and, you know, I guess um, anthropologists would also say that um, you know, that that's often why females take longer to orgasm, because in an evolutionary sense, um, you know, you could have sort of more than one lover in the same session, and then the strongest uh-huh. sperm, you know, gets to <laughs> fertilise the egg and so on. So, yeah. I, I would say this is... Uh... This is new territory for the Blank Podcast. <laughs> I would say, Charles. I'm glad to break new ground. Yeah, I, I don't. I, was, I hadn't really planned what I was going to say. Well, because your, your conversations are very free flowing, but you yeah, know, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. here we are. 
No, it's great. <laughs> but I, th- I think, but I think these sort of conversations are actually important because I'm sure there'll be lots of people listening to this podcast that maybe haven't even really thought about this kind of thing before and might think, oh, this is actually something I want to, you know, like talk about that experiment. I want to maybe learn a bit more about myself because I think the more you learn about yourself and if you're in a relationship, your partner, then it can only strengthen your connection. Yeah. Because knowledge is sort of power in that sense, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. And, you know, even if you don't go and actually take part in a sex lab. <laughs> um, <laughs> Jim's spitting out his coffee. Sorry, that was the wrong time to take a sip of tea. Sorry, that was you know, very much the wrong time. Thinking about it does perhaps <laughs> stimulate some interesting conversations. Certainly people who had been to my comedy show, Is Monogamy Dead, were telling me that they had had long conversations into the night afterwards with, with their partners. So, yeah, very, very interesting. And th- and that's really where it boils down to, isn't it? I think if you are then having conversations, particularly about maybe, because I was thinking as you were talking earlier, is it is it a British thing that we're just we're just a bit not stuck up, <laughs> but we find these things awkward and a yeah. bit nervous, and so we just don't we don't, we actually do have opinions about them and thoughts and wishes and desires, but we don't actually talk about them because it's a bit it's not very British, is it? To do and all that stiff upper lip and all mm-hmm. that, but actually it, it all boils down to just talking and conversation, and 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 once you do broach that subject and talk to your significant other about it. It's, as I said earlier, it's never really a bad thing, but it, it's never going to start unless you start, or happen unless you start talking. Yeah. I mean, it is interesting, though. There are certainly studies that show that in countries where we are less good at talking about affairs or, or have more of a kind of strict moral code about affairs, we do have higher divorce rates. Whereas in some countries where uh-huh, affairs yeah. are sort of assumed to be just part of life, like well, dare I say, in some European countries like France. Um, <laughs> That's what I was thinking of as well, to be honest, to be being honest. Yeah, um, you know, um, divorce rates are sometimes lower in, in some of those countries, which is, it, it is quite interesting. I mean, obviously, you can kind of, I, I do think it's funny with studies. I, I do joke about how when you quote studies, you've got to take it with a pinch of salt and look at who sponsored the study. Um, because yeah. I... Um, I do quote a study in in my book about um, how couples that sleep separately are often happier, but then that was sponsored by a bed company who wanted to sell prices (laughs) on your beds. (laughs) With a great line on new single beds. Yeah, Yeah. and also the um, the surveys that um, say that painkillers help with emotional pain, which I think is true, but, you know, some of the studies had been supported by drug companies who who want to sell more painkillers. So, yeah. And that's why it's true because I used to work in journalism actually, and that's you'd always get the press releases coming around about new study. This university's done this study. You think, so why? This has completely come out of the blue. Why is this done? And you bury down to the bottom line, and yeah, yeah, obviously it's been sponsored by some sort of random brand. So <laughs> you know, nothing, nothing is ever as it seems no, in no, the world. Not always. <laughs> Now I'm never going to trust another survey that I ever see. <laughs> um, going back a bit, Rosie, how did you first get into comedy? Because you, am I right, you you born in Liverpool? Yes, yes, I was born yeah. in Crosby in Liverpool and grew up yeah. in a town called Ormskirk in Lancashire, not too far from Liverpool. Well, I always tell people it's a bit like Liverpool if you take away everything, um, <laughs> um, which is a bit harsh, but it's it's just a fairly quiet market town. Yeah. And um, yeah, I kind of don't have tons of fond memories of growing up there as a teenager in the 1980s because I was starting to work out my identity as a gay woman and yeah the 1980s were 
not the most friendly yeah. time to the gays. <laughs> no, yeah. <laughs> to put it lightly. Yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. So I think I started to find my feet more in the world when I went to university in the early 90s. And I went to university in York. And I can remember that's where I suppose I got a strong sense of starting to be interested in equality and politics and mm. you know that that sort of identity and community and I can remember I've talked about in, in one of my shows that was called 90s woman and it was about discovering feminism in the early 90s and I talked about how we staged a same-sex wedding demo on Valentine's Day in 1992 outside York Minster, thinking that this was a bizarre thing, that <laughs> two women would surely never marry two men. What are you talking about? Um, and so, but what was quite sad and a little bit poignant about this was that the one of the women who was getting married to her girlfriend at the time, was someone I had a huge crush on. And so it was sort of a little bit sad. Like, even though it wasn't a real marriage, it was like, oh, she's marrying somebody else. (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, dear. Um, And I think, really, it was because I had a crush on this woman that I got involved with with feminism, with the women's group and this women's newspaper that we produced at uni. Um, And it is quite funny how you can stumble into politics through, Mm. you know, not not always the great idealistic reasons. It might just be, oh, quite like that person and I quite like to hang out with them. And then you end up stumbling on some pretty good ideas about how society could be and how you could kind of fight for things that you believe in. Mm. Um, So, yeah, I really got interested in in feminism and equality and and thinking about kind of gay rights and so on. I mean, obviously now we would talk about LGBTQ rights, but we kind of didn't really have all the letters then, Um, even though I actually met tons of bi and trans people who fell outside of, you know, kind of the straight or gay uh, yeah. binary. Even even back then, we had we had tons of trans women involved in our kind of women's activities. So, you know, like it kind of um, shocks me to sort of see the, the divisions that, that we have now. Um, but, yeah, and, yeah, I can remember... Um, starting to sort of find my own voice a bit, and I became I became the women's off, women's officer on the students' union at York, and we had a week of activities every year called Women's Week, and I remember doing a survey about what sort of things people wanted to see in this, and I did a rather controversial thing which upset the radical feminists that I'd been trying to impress, <laughs> and I decided that I wanted men to have a voice as well because I felt men should be engaged in and involved with feminism so this Mm. survey went out to to male students as well and that was a controversial move but I kind of by that stage (laughs) I thought well I can't you know I can't be with this woman I have a crush on so it's almost as good to kind of annoy her a bit (laughs) 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 but at the same time I genuinely genuinely believed men should have a voice but you know unfortunately Mm -hmm. some of those men were idiots Um, (laughs) because they were like you know 19 year old lads saying well I'd like us to all get pissed and watch football Um, and of course at the time in the early 90s that was what a lot of women did because it there was the whole yeah, ladette yeah. thing and that yes, was sort of yeah. aspirational to be a ladette and be as laddie as the men
yes, I remember that. I've got an overriding question, actually, as you talk from that. Before you do that, I just like, I can't let you mentioning trans people go without saying that there is, sorry to derail it, there is a current war on trans people, essentially, in the media at the moment, and it's absolutely appalling. And, um, yeah, it really it really angers me. Mm-hmm. I just wanted to mention that because it's, it, as you say at the moment, is, yeah, there's a genuine war on, war on trans people. Um, anyway, who, what happened to this lady? That was my question. What happened to this lady? <laughs> oh, who had a, I had a crush on? Yeah, who had a crush well, on? Well, um, so part of the motivation for my show, 90s Woman, which was my show, solo show in 2014, which I took to Edinburgh that year, um, was that I wanted to track down the feminists from kind of 1991 1992 so you know um a good while earlier um and find out what they were doing and if they would still call themselves feminists because around that sort of 2013 2014 time it felt like feminism had really disappeared and of course then suddenly mm. it, it really re-emerged and there were tons of comedians talking about being feminists that uh, you know there were books like Catelyn's Moran Catelyn Moran's book which had come out a couple of years earlier how to be a woman and and so this new energy suddenly started up behind feminism but I felt that it had all disappeared for quite a long period of time so I wanted to did it Rosie did it did it disappear the day that Gordon Brown wore a t-shirt saying this is what a feminist looks like <laughs> well I, well, loads of politicians did, didn't they? Sorry yeah, to single out one, but yeah, loads did. I, I do think there was something about... I mean, I'm a, I'm a lifelong Labour voter, but there was something about new Labour mm. um, that somehow uh, kind of made yeah. the countercultural suddenly mainstream and sort of ruined it. Um, you know, when you had There's Tony a, having yeah. Noel Gallagher for drinks yeah. and champagne and all of yeah, that kind yeah. of thing... Um, yeah, it, it you know, I mean, obviously Labour needed to get into power, but... <laughs> at what, well, at what it was, cost? Yeah, again, sorry to get like too political, but yeah, exactly at what cost that really of sort of the sort of true morals and values of being Labour. There was a really interesting article, and I can't remember where I saw it, online somewhere, um, about how during the 90s and 2000s, New Labour sort of helped with this war against poor people. Do you remember every TV show was essentially using poor people and profitizing off profitizing that's not a word profiting off them essentially sort of putting them down you know all these reality tv shows is about how isn't it funny that poor people can't you know and 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 saying about new labor sort of helped perpetualize this well, it's like fascinating porn type sort of stuff you talking yeah, about well, kind of like that yeah and a lot of reality tv shows were about you know uh, oh isn't it horrible to live like a poor person look at this poor person let's let's switch them with a rich person that kind of stuff and it was just yeah it was interesting i again i've i most on, the, on this podcast, Rosie, I butcher references to stuff. And I've done it again there, but it just reminded me of this article that came up. That, um, which, when I was reading it, I was looking back, thinking, "Yeah, you're right. There was a lot of TV was like that in the '90s and, and 2000s." So, yeah. yeah. So again, I've, ra- I've derailed this conversation no, again, but, but that's popped into my head about what happened to to this woman. Yes, and, yes, you found um, the feminists. So yes, I decided to go in video interviews with me, um, asking them. What, what they were doing now um so yeah. it was it was it was funny and i would sort of you know turn up on i mean they knew i was turning up on the doorsteps so <laughs> 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 it was completely unwarranted um but i mean there was a brilliant moment where one of the most 
radical feminists and separatist feminists as I had remembered her um, a, a, a really kind of brilliant and clever woman called Farah who's um, now a sci-fi author and academic um, she had always been one of these women that I'd been very scared of who I'd remembered her saying that she would never sort of allow a man across the threshold and I knocked on her door and her husband answered. (laughs) 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 You know, it was just funny how some of these um, women who at the time had been lesbian for perhaps political reasons, there was this um, term at the time, political lesbianism. So you would be... Oh, really? Yeah, you would identify as gay as a political statement rather than because you were gay. And I was really confused by this because I was like, but I'm actually gay. I'm like, actually, (laughs) (laughs) how does it work? Um, So, so yeah, so it turns out that, yes, uh, the women who who I'd been in love with at, at uni actually had married a man ultimately as well. <laughs> oh, man. So, so what, but at uni, how old is everyone at this point? 19, yeah, 20, like 19. 21? But, but um, yes, yeah, some of the some of the women that were in this kind of women's group and started up this feminist newspaper that I got involved with had taken a year out, you know, gone travelling and done things that seemed highly sophisticated and I'd just come straight from school and was a bit of a a nerd and, you know, had an unfortunate perm and... (laughs) and, uh, (laughs) You know, I was was actually studying engineering even though I, I wasn't... I don't know. I, I wasn't that into it. Um, I did still get my degree, but I've gone a completely different way and, and done sort of creative work pretty much ever since. But I'd been one of those girls who was good at science at school and had sort of been steered in that way because they were still, you know, trying to get more women into physics and technology and so on. Mm. Um, but I realised that it didn't, I don't know, didn't, didn't quite do it for me. <laughs> So from, how did you get into doing, because you did some, you did a lot of TV work. How did you get into doing the TV work? Was that just, Um, was that something you really wanted to do or was that kind of a happy accident? So I did some TV production work, which was through the avenue of having done an engineering degree and having done a placement um, at the BBC, actually, well, initially as an engineer, but trying to sort of sneak into other departments that I found more interesting. And then I got a place on a a film and production training scheme, which I've no idea if it still exists. It was called FT2, and it was supported by Channel 4. And so, yeah, I did various placements in film and television production. And probably one of the projects I enjoyed working on the most was with a production company called Maya Vision, who were um, not exclusively a queer production company, but they worked on a lot of LGBT films and TV shows and had a lot of kind of queer staff and so we worked on this film called a bit of scarlet which was um i think there's an american one which is um a similar kind of idea but like a sort of history of queer imagery in british film and television and Mm. rather than it make it like a documentary with talking heads um the director andrea andrea weiss she's called um 
we weaved it we weaved a narrative between all these different clips so you would have these kind of burlesque and drag performers from you know the 50s that we'd found some old wax cylinder that we'd somehow transferred it onto film and got it into a format we could use and then cut to Kenneth Williams and Charles Hawtrey and carry on constable you know going oh I say you know (laughs) and some of that kind of 1960s 70s camp um and so yeah and then you know films um um depicting you know uh virginia wolf or vita and virginia and, and um you know kind of vita Sackville west and and these kind of lesbian relationships in that kind of literary bourgeois kind of bloomsbury kind of set um so so yeah we kind of weave this this narrative through through all this kind of queer representation over several decades in in british film and tv archive and it, yeah it was really really interesting that sounds fascinating i need to watch that that sounds what's well, got a bit of scarlet yeah yeah i'm going to uh make a note of that but yeah that sounds that sounds fascinating um and then you you got you got involved in music journalism is that right was that sort of the next um Yes, yes, it was. I think um, very much when I when I was a student and growing up, I'd always wanted to get to London because um, I felt like that was where, you know, growing up in the north, it seemed like London was where things were happening. I mean, now I think we have strong cultural centres mm. all over the UK, um, whereas then it still felt like London was where you know interesting things where the music business where the tv industry was all very much centered yeah. um so yes i'd always wanted to get to london and so when i was doing this film and tv course i suppose that was my initial kind of passport to coming and living in dodgy flat shares in london <laughs> yeah. uh, <laughs> kind of weird lesbian house shares um that i would see advertised in a newspaper that used to exist called the pink paper um mm-hmm. and so i suppose yeah at that time i was quite um i suppose my identity and politics were quite defined by my sexuality even though i wasn't a political lesbian i, I kind of was in a sense <laughs> yeah yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah so Yes, so I kind of hung out with a lot of kind of interesting creative people and, yeah, as well as doing the film and TV placements, I did start my own band um, and started writing songs and and rehearsing at this um, rehearsal rooms on the Holloway Road and I remember picking up this gigantic free magazine called Making Music um, that you know, you could just submit your own reviews and get paid a few quid. And I started writing for them and getting a cuttings folder together. And then I actually started writing a column for them called Rosie's Pop Diary, which was my exploits of trying to form a band and and the kind of weird carousel of auditioning guitarists and drummers. And I mean, I went to sort of weird blind date kind of, music <laughs> events where you would put a sticker on you saying oh i'm a singer looking for a guitarist um and so yeah i've heard about those yeah yeah like traffic light parties yeah yeah i documented that process of, of forming a band and doing first demos and gigging and yeah i mean it was I suppose it was a bit tongue-in-cheek and a bit you know i've always kind of made fun of my own failures as much as <laughs> 
much has picked up my successes, which is, I guess, paved the way for ultimately doing comedy. But yeah, music journalism really came at the same time as also performing music because it seemed to make sense to be seeing lots of bands and and writing about them as well. So I guess probably the person I would have to credit with having a bit of a career for a while as a music journalist would be the then music editor. She went on to become editor of Time Out magazine, a wonderful woman called Laura Lee Davies, um, who, yeah, I, I wrote her a letter. <laughs> We're talking about old technology. and sent her <laughs> some of my clippings from this big kind of free music magazine and said, I'd like to write more about music and I'd love to write for Time Out because in those days, pre-internet, this is like, you know, early to mid-90s, Time Out was like a Bible. Mm, yeah. I mean, magazines like that yeah, yeah. told you what was going on in the city. Mm. <laughs> you couldn't look it up on the internet. You know, you would look up what films yeah. were on at what time, <laughs> what gigs were on, what was on telly. <laughs> you know, it had everything yeah. in there. Whereas now, you know, it's just a tiny kind of very thin free thing <laughs> but you'd pay yeah. you know, you'd pay good money for it back in the day because it had everything you needed to know about where you needed to be well, well same with nme nme used to be a huge oh, yeah. magazine didn't it oh, and that's melody just... maker melody maker was my favorite one out of those two yeah, yeah. yes <laughs> and I'm a bit more of a rocker, so I used to buy Kerrang. Oh, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Um, so, yeah, and Metal Hammer was the other one. But Metal Hammer was good because <laughs> you got a free CD with it. Um, <laughs> I'm all about free CDs. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it was great. That was, I mean, but an exciting time to be in, like, I mean, that was when I was kind of starting, was around mid mid to late 90s. Yeah. And it was a really exciting time in music. I mean, the British music scene was amazing, like, really sort of burgeoning, even yeah. the rock scene as well, and the rock scene in America was really um getting big as well and lots mm. of bands were coming and touring over here so it was an exciting time though so exciting yeah time i think i think so it. wasn't it because it felt like after the very manufactured pop of the 80s and how yeah. dominant that had been there was more of an emphasis on real songwriting and, mm, and you know yeah. people showing some emotion you know i remember obviously being a student in york and um dancing to nirvana and yeah it's just so raw like the music had suddenly changed and i think nirvana in particular signaled that kind of sea change oh absolutely well i mean they famously knocked michael jackson off the billboard charts didn't they i think number one so you can't get a bigger statement (laughs) yeah exactly yeah 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 (laughs) Yeah, so it's really exciting. So you did that for a bit. Um, so how did the comedy come about? Were, were you? I'm, I'm imagining you performing music and and maybe slipping a bit of comedy as well. Is yeah, that, is that the, was that yeah, the case? Definitely. Um, I think what happened was when my band all started to go their own separate ways. Um, I was performing solo for a bit, but a bit half-heartedly because I felt a bit bereft without other people Mm. there, (laughs) you know. Um, And Mm. so I wanted to add something else to the performance. And so I would send myself up and, you know, kind of make fun of this sort of wistful woman with a guitar because suddenly around that late 90s early noughties time there were a million of those traips around london with our acoustic guitars here's another song about my (laughs) love gone wrong Um, and yeah so i wanted to sort of change the mood in between the songs and so 
I started just telling quite self-deprecating stories about I don't know about something that had happened to me on the way to the gig or what the um, what the song was about and where that had come from and people yeah. were kind of chuckling away I think it, it was just this strange kind of <laughs> kind of self self-destruct kind of mode that that sort of worked in in a way so yeah I started entering one or two comedy competitions in the mid-noughties when I was in this weird transitional time when I wasn't enjoying music anymore and I was dab- still dabbling with the journalism and stuff, but not so much. Um, and, yeah, kind of found comedy and, and entered a few competitions and found myself going through to the to the latter stages and in particular a competition called Funny Women where I got into the final in 2006 at the Comedy Store and then I guess from then on started gigging a lot more. I'd really been dabbling with just a gig here or there in between doing music stuff and other things, maybe a bit of other creative freelancing in the media or still a bit of TV dabbling as well. But <laughs> um, yeah, then and comedy kind of became a way to express ideas and do something interesting Mm -hmm. and you know I I love comedy and the kind of freedom it gives you but I also think that is changing and it's sort of you know I mentioned kind of new labor a little while ago and how the countercultural suddenly became mainstream and I think arguably you could say that was just just at the time I got into comedy in the mid-noughties it was all starting to change already and this big kind of boom of comedy on television has really changed the face of what it's like because the people getting into it many of them want to be famous where it whereas it was <laughs> i don't know comedy mm. when i first got into it was all these kind of weird drifters who'd come from somewhere else having failed terribly yeah. and, and it was kind of unconfident introverts and i loved it yeah. because we were all just weirdos and it was brilliant and you kind of found a home and somewhere to be a bit like when i first came to london and found the queer community and found this alternative sense of family and there was this real bonding experience of doing really weird open mic nights where you know there are just two people there and a dog (laughs) and you're glad that the dog is there as well (laughs) you know you're kind of grateful um i mean one of those nights i remember i actually uh closed it down like it was during my set but even the few people that were there decided to leave um and i don't think i don't think that night even ran anymore and then i went past the venue on the bus and the venue would close down as well (laughs) wow what a track record (laughs) i know my god so so yeah i think just chatting between songs got me into this other kind of space in in comedy and so very quickly i wanted to start taking shows to edinburgh because that's sort of what you're supposed to do <laughs> i mean yeah, again yeah. another thing that's got a bit too big and out of control yeah um but although although i hear it was brilliant um this year because it was so much smaller again like the old days yeah. but then it's not yeah. gonna stay like that again um but yeah so i started taking shows to edinburgh which meant that i started investigating different themes to explore and you know as well as some of my shows as i've mentioned about feminism and and other other things um started doing this kind of sciencey trilogy about love and relationships and how attraction and sexuality work and kind of 
drew on, I suppose, my old interest in science at school. Um, hadn't wanted to really pursue that as a career, but that actual kind of interest in how things work had had kind of come up within these comedy shows and, and looking at, you know, doing these kind of spoofy lectures about sexuality and attraction. And my show, The Science of Sex, which kicked off this trilogy, was really the kind of spoofy, subversive sex ed lesson that I wish I'd had at school. <laughs> <laughs> I, I used to love going to watch bands and they'd have good patter in between songs like that. For some reason, that would just make me love a band even more. I, I think it's because you don't expect it, I guess. You just expect people to do songs and be a bit surly in between. But any, any band that are really good at that, I used to love. So I'm sure your audiences like, just ate that up and loved it yeah, at the time. I'm trying to think who was always quite good at that. Um, I think Richard Hawley, I've seen, have some hmm. good kind of deadpan banter between songs. It's a yeah, real art just, to do that, yeah, actually. Yeah. It is. I mean, I've been in several bands and never quite mastered the in-between songs bit. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, it's fine if you're cool enough. I think if you're cool enough, it's probably yeah, you can get away with being surly. Cool. But I mean, <laughs> it wasn't a dig. That wasn't a dig. <laughs> but, um, but I like I like the pattern between. I think it's I think it's really really it's really great. But I, I want to go back really quickly to something you said about when the, the your band you were going solo and your band start doing their own things. Right at the start, we're talking about breakups. That, in a way, I guess, is a bit of a breakup, isn't it? Yeah. When you've had this connection and this thing you're doing, and then they're starting to drift away from you, and they're not submarining you or, or curveballing yeah. you, whatever it was. <laughs> but they, but they, but they, it is kind of a sort of a, a breakup itself. Oh, definitely, and that's why in the breakup monologues book. I talk about different types of breakups as well, like friendship breakups or professional breakups, um, because yeah. they are also endings and we don't have as many recognisable cultural scripts for mourning them, which is a shame, I think, because sometimes we really don't know what to do and we don't know where to reach out to. So, yeah, that period in my life when... I was transitioning from music to comedy at, right at the end of the 90s and beginning of the noughties. I mean, it was a weird time anyway. We had this shift into a new millennium when we thought everything yeah. was going to crash. <laughs> yeah. <the end>. yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah, millennium bug. Millennium oh. bug, I know. Yeah. Um, but also, it, yeah, it was a time of, of loss and, and recovery and healing for me because um, my mum passed away. She, she had cancer and died in... Um, uh, 1999 so yeah it was this weird kind of time at the end of the 90s which had been this sort of celebratory decade um, mm. of you know like you say cool Britannia and, and the music scene being very vibrant and being involved with that as a journalist and as a musician um, and then you know also being having been interested in politics you know seeing new Labour come in you know initially was was euphoric and then mm. <laughs> you know then there were yeah. the doubts um, but yeah. at that time everything the, the world seemed sort of positive and good place things seemed quite buoyant but um yeah obviously my you know my own life was was um 
deeply impacted by by this by this loss and i think that's partly what triggered the change to comedy as well because sort of music and exploring that was was hard and painful and and difficult and so comedy even though i've gone on to explore quite meaty or difficult or deep topics in my comedy shows and in the comedy shows that have then become slightly more like theatre shows or you know morphed Mm. into something else and then a book and a podcast where we do explore the difficult and sad as well as the happy fun stuff um yeah i guess at the time comedy seemed like a lighter art form to to just explore for a while and start start dipping my toes into yeah well you talked about sort of when you're saying about the the talking between songs that it was a way for you to sort of talk about your failures and stuff and that brought you into comedy but i think comedy is comedy is failure essentially comedy is failure and pain and and finding a way to <laughs> use that to your advantage isn't it and because yeah. again we're, we're awkward people so i think if we can joke about stuff that that hurts us or that has been disappointing it is a way of sort of like working through it and comedy essentially is doing that and the more you do that and talk about your own shortcomings and failings audiences relate to you because they think oh i feel like that i've had that and if you can make it palatable and funny yeah. in a way you're sort of improving everyone's life yeah which is why breakups are kind of the perfect topic really to be addressing through comedy yeah yeah completely agree um that was my only point on comedy <laughs> <laughs> no but it's interesting that um i've had this conversation with people recently actually about how trauma or, or difficult, and obviously this podcast is about difficult moments, but how those moments propel you on to doing something new or something that, you know, maybe, you know, obviously grief in all its forms, whether it be a breakup or, or a loss of someone, mm. can, can actually really propel you um, into doing something new and adventurous. Um, and obviously maybe that was a similar sort of thing for you as well to a certain extent. <laughs> Yeah, I think so. I think, um, yeah, definitely that that sort of dealing with something and going into that dark place um, means that you do have to find, navigate a way out of it. And sometimes we come up with quite creative solutions for that. And we, you know, we think about how things in our life may need to change and, and some things are not working. But sometimes it does take, you know, a catalyst that is mm. is really, really tough. I mean, that actually was not the only um, kind of big life event that, that happened during that period because in um, the summer of 2000, um, my partner and I came home from our respective um, workplaces that day. I was doing some freelancing at this weird internet TV company that, that thought they were reinventing TV, and it was kind of awful. Um, and it was the first time I, I experienced hot desking, and I thought, what is this? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Um, yeah. Anyway, um, we came home to find that our flat had 
had a serious house fire had kind of gone up in smoke oh, and our neighbor oh no. said oh you know really sorry there's been a terrible accident and um yeah it was all kind of boarded up by the fire brigade and it was just a post-it note on the door saying call this number in the morning and we were like oh, <laughs> oh my god <laughs> so oh we couldn't my actually word. get into our our rented flat um so we had to stay with a friend and it was this kind of hugely dramatic time where we were flat sitting for different friends over that summer um with our well we had we had three cats who um you know at first we didn't know if they were alive but fortunately they were just running around the garden and that first night they just lived wild in the garden and our neighbor was feeding them (laughs) bless them um i mean it was kind of warm weather so but they were just kind of crying and mewing at the you know the back door that was all boarded up um but then we kind of you know would pack them up in their little cat boxes to stay at one week at one friend's house who'd gone away to Spain or something (laughs) while we were looking after their flat and then another person's flat and we, you know, eventually um, decided to go our own ways because this, I think this dramatic... Uh, event had sort of made us think about our relationship and we remained really good friends and we had a very conscious Mm. and amicable separation really my first experience of conscious uncoupling long before Gwyneth Paltrow (laughs) made that phrase very famous um you know I think that that sort of behavior has existed for a long long time yeah and so yeah we went our separate ways and and yeah I found somewhere to live and so did she and yeah, it was, yeah, I think, um, I mean, it's weird when you, you have a fire or a flood or something where you lose your stuff. I mean, and it is only stuff, but it's also yeah. meaningful as well. You know, when you go into your home and, I don't know, just things are just completely melted, like my guitars and my keyboards oh. and stuff were all morphed into weird shapes, like a different instrument, because oh. heat rises, <laughs> right? And so my guitar would be like there was one that was on a stand and it would be fine until just the the hair you know the neck that the top bit of the guitar would be all kind of melted over and hanging down oh. like a weird sort of stalactite type like a thing. salvador dali painting yes exactly that <laughs> it was so weird um so we had insurance fortunately and also our landlord at the time gave us our deposit back <laughs> Which <laughs> that never happens. Which is a win. <laughs> because he felt the bad. The place wasn't, yeah, it wasn't left in the way that you found it. <laughs> well, but the thing was, he felt bad because his highly flammable furniture had, oh, okay. uh, uh, had really not helped matters. Yeah. 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 I think we had left like a little tiny candle burning and he'd had this cheapy furniture, which had just kind of okay. fueled that fire. Yeah. Oh, oh man, that's heartbreaking. Though to to, I can't imagine what it's like coming home to find that you know, your you know all your possessions and are, are no longer there. That, yeah. that just feels. And I think yeah. it was really a weird, alienating experience having already just uh, you know only sure. kind of six yeah. to eight months earlier experienced a, a big personal loss as well. It just felt the losses were kind of racking up and and piling up. Yeah, it's a lot. It's a lot to go through. I think in a short sort of space of time. That's um, yeah, it's very traumatic things to happen to you. Uh, 
yeah, at the same time, I think it's... Uh, but I think that yeah, is sometimes how, sadly, how it happens in life is that we have things all happen at once and we sort yeah. of are then untangling. I talk in the book about untangling the strands of grief and what, you, you know, are you grieving the end of a relationship or the loss of your mother or the loss of your home and your possessions, you know, because all of those things hurt, but you sort of feel... Yeah you know that there should be a sort of um a kind of hierarchy of grief almost and you feel like well i should hurt most about mum and then the relationship and then the possessions but all those things become muddled up but and you almost feel guilty if you're crying about uh, you know a jumper that but you really love that jumper and uh, you know it's hard isn't it because it's all mixed in together yeah but also if that's how you feel that's how you feel you know if you're if you're crying over something then that is your body you know yeah. you're not telling you that's how you feel about that thing or everything else or, yeah. it's yeah. kind of the last straw you know <laughs> yeah <laughs> so and i mean i must tell you as well just to catalogue yeah, yeah, all sorry, my yeah. misfortunes at that time <laughs> is that when i did then move into um a house share <laughs> um, then not long after i'd moved into this house share we had a burglary at the house oh, and no. <laughs> all the stuff that got taken was just from my room it was like the burglars had gone around and gone oh well, we're going this room but the weird thing was was what got taken was my fax machine and my tennis racket so i've, <laughs> I've sort of got this weird weird vision of this this criminal who is sending faxes and bouncing a tennis ball against the wall going, ha, ha. How, how to date how to date a burglary they took the fax machine i know <laughs> <laughs> that's weird only your room though that i mean i, I am that no detective I'm a, that i'm a netflix detective if anything but that sounds like an inside job right <laughs> Ooh. now you're gonna have to go back and find all your <laughs> that's old all i got that's all i got show. sorry interview all your old housemates yeah. <laughs> with that harsh light that police detectives do oh man so I guess, Blimey. like like you said, the the, the breakup monologues, the the podcast and the book are kind of the not the end of this journey, but the, you know they're a part of this journey that you've been on for for quite some time. Where where do you feel that really started for you? That, that you know, obviously wanting to create that first show. So what starting to look at the sort of love and relationships kind mm. of thing? Yeah, um, I think. It was when I was in the relationship I got into when I started comedy um, was with someone who is a lovely human being, um, but was deeply in turmoil and conflict at that time because she could not come out. And this was a very challenging situation. I mean, I sort of, you know, latterly made light of it. Oh, you know, she did try to make me feel better by saying that her parents had enjoyed the film Brokeback Mountain. (laughs) (laughs) which i I thought was hardly giving a great sense of how gay partnerships can turn out um but yeah i suppose i was in this quite challenging relationship um even though there were lots of things that were, were great about it for a while um and i don't know i responded to that sort of uh difficulty and conflict with a kind of well let's fight to make this work kind of Mm. 
kind of energy which um you know ultimately failed of course and I mean this was kind of the breakup that spurred my interest in breakups because I got dumped by email which I mean in this era of ghosting might might be quite quaint and polite <laughs> but, oh, wow. at the time I you know I, I kind of joked again you know to make light of a painful situation that I felt much better once I corrected her spelling um, <laughs> but yeah you know so I think it was finding that relationships were challenging and difficult and you know also I think for much of my lifetime relationships that look different to the normative narrative yeah. of a romantic relationship have been more difficult you know um i think obviously yes all all relationships are difficult and everyone experiences challenges and difficulties in in the world i mean particularly now as you've mentioned jim the trans community are, are, you know facing this horrible kind of you know rubbish a lot of the time yeah. um yeah but yeah i mean when i was growing up um yeah for anyone who, who was gay um you know who was different in some way it was it was really tough so i think actually investigating sexuality and the origins of of my sexuality and understanding some of the science um i got to know a scientist who who a guy called kazi rahman who is looking into that that whole question of nature versus nurture you know what what makes us gay or straight or bisexual or somewhere on a spectrum in between all of that and um yeah he was doing these tests oh gosh oh, like 10 11 years ago that i went and participated in where you take part in tests in sort of memory and word fluency and map reading mm. and 3d shape rotation and whether you can rotate something in in your mind and there is this idea that um heterosexual male brains are in some ways similar to lesbian brains and heterosexual female brains are in some ways similar to to uh, gay male brains well certainly mm. our, our sexual orientation kind of faces in that same way and it does seem there are certain skills that align along those kind of parameters as well um certainly in the case of gay men and straight women and that's often why you do see gay men and straight women becoming really really great friends because actually yeah. they do seem to work psychologically in a lot of similar ways and they do seem to have a lot of the same kind of skill sets and and that's that's really really interesting but you know obviously there's danger of kind of stereotyping and making assumptions because we're all so different within mm. all of this um and yeah but i i would think i was really fascinated in the origins of that sexuality and understanding and unpacking it so that you can kind of reduce discrimination if you understand something better That's how, I mean, you know, getting rid of discrimination has been a, it's been a long road and it's going to continue to be a long road, but it is understanding. It completely is understanding where other people come from who, who you think are wrong or you, you don't look at things in the same way. But if you have a bit of understanding, that, is a, that, that helps a long way to going to, to making relationships better and for everyone, really. But I don't know, there's so many people these days that, I say these days, I guess throughout time probably, 
don't want to understand how other people feel like don't want to try and connect to other people but essentially a little bit of understanding can go a long way yeah definitely yeah Yeah, I I think so I think that's what we need isn't it to to hear one another but it's not always easy is it we're kind of very set in our own scripts of how things are supposed to be yeah yeah and I guess that that sort of thing is exacerbated by social media I mean social media in some ways is good because we we can be more open with one another but also it then feels also the you know the conspiracy theories the 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 people that are on (laughs) one side of the fence or the other side of the fence you know the binary kind of conversations are inflated aren't they so you get the best and the worst I guess I guess so I I I, yeah I I quite like social media I mean you know we've kind of got to know each other on Twitter and that's how we're we're chatting right now so in general I've had good experiences. I I particularly quite enjoy Twitter. I think a lot of writers and the writing community enjoy Twitter. I know we're supposed to all move on to other platforms now. I can't can't, can't deal with those young... It's all about video now, isn't it? Oh, God. Yeah, yeah. Um, But, yeah, no, I think... uh, I think I think in general it's a good way of of connecting but I think we can make the mistake of thinking it replaces getting together in in physical yeah. space I know it's been harder to get together in physical space so we've had to rely on digital connection but it's not quite the same quality of engagement or interaction I I don't think <laughs> Yeah I agree I think social media is like a reminder of it's great because you can connect with people you might not have met before or you don't live near and you've got similar interests and stuff. And I think that's great. But it is like a reminder that we are still supposed to meet in person. Yeah. We are still supposed to have this physical connection to people. And like I say, it can't, it can't replace it. It's, not, it's just not the same. Well, I suppose this idea that um, we can just connect to anybody also it ties into the idea of the dating industry and the dating culture and the dating apps are kind of feeding off this idea that there there could be any number of possible matches for us Mm -hmm. out there um so it becomes harder and harder for us to feel satisfied with with one because it seems like there would be limitless options you know it's the sort of paradox of choice isn't it although i do talk about how one website I was on many years ago, um, it matched me with myself, but (laughs) (laughs) I was only a 73% match. (laughs) Well, we used to do the thing for matching with someone. You used to write out the name and then loves and then their name. And then you would, you'd see how many of the, let's say if you have any L's you've got in the name, then you'd count it up and then you'd get your percentage (laughs) in. Do you remember doing that? A very scientific approach. Yeah. (laughs) just as scientific as some of the algorithms yeah, that are used. Yeah. <laughs> I think that someone's just somewhere in a room just doing this. Uh, yeah, so Jim Daly loves Miranda. <laughs> and then there's, oh, so in Jim, there's, uh, there's no L's. But Daly's one L, so that's one. <laughs> but at least on that, at least on that, uh, that process, Rosie would have got a 100% match of herself, not 73%. <laughs> yeah, that's true, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's true well Rosie it's been such a fascinating conversation with you thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today I really enjoyed talking to you and the book's brilliant and I can recommend it to anybody oh um, thank you yeah and uh, yeah it's really great and um, I'm going to 
I've I've got up to pace. Where am I? I'm I'm near Ooh. the end now. But yeah, Ooh, but well I'm really 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 enjoying it. It's, uh, <laughs> oh, yeah. thank no, it's you. fascinating. It's absolutely fascinating. <laughs> well, um, it's probably worth mentioning that the breakup monologues is also an audio book narrated by me, and also there is a podcast which is different yes. content, different stories and stuff to the book. Largely, there's there's a little bit of overlap. Cool. Thank Thanks, you, Rosie, Rosie, so much. Oh, thank you. have it i couldn't remember what my sign off was on the pod i I thought in a split second i'm going to do a new one for new year and i couldn't think of anything so i think that's what i used to do anyway um anyway rosie Wilby, what a fantastic guest i mean as we said some fruity content but we are here for it on this podcast and (laughs) fascinating just fascinating as well Our, our episodes only work when our guests are really open about themselves and their lives and, and and rosie really really was so thank you to her just a lovely guest and what a way to kick off 2022 yeah brilliant from rosie and lovely I, I'm, i've got the book in front of me actually i'm going back and looking at the all the different connotations of ghosting which fascinates me like <laughs> the whole ghosting thing is interesting actually i think it's a it's a weird thing that we do and i think much made much easier now with social media although you'd think it would be easier in the old days when we didn't have such levels of communication maybe it's harder now <gasps> to deal with uh, you just reminded me that there's a Netflix, <laughs> there's a Netflix movie. The Christmas Ghosting. <laughs> it's literally called something like that. It might not be a Christmas film, but it's called The Christmas... No, it's not Christmas, but my wife was watching it yesterday, and it is called Ghosting, and it's where a couple were dating. The girl sadly passes away in a car crash or something, but then he doesn't know that, but then she comes back as a ghost, and she literally ghosts... She was ghosting him... As a ghost. And then she ghosts him, and then she ghosts him again as a ghost. It's just too meta. It's just Jesus so bad. Christ! That's it's so bad. I can't. I, your explanation has frazzled my brain. Uh, <laughs> anyway, um, I might avoid that. Uh, but yeah, ghost ghosting. There's caspering. Uh, there yeah, is yeah. Um, uh, marleying, which is the Christmas version of it, where you just like getting <laughs> back in touch at Christmas. Breadcrumbing. Oh, sorry to interrupt. Chris, Muppets Christmas Carol is a staple of for oh, our house. Brilliant over film. Christmas. Yeah, yeah, see that? Yeah, that's much more my level. Yeah, that's more like it, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. Well done. Um, <laughs> icing, which is like putting a relationship. So, anyway, all these different conversations, and, and Rosie goes into them a lot more in the podcast. But yeah, I, it's fascinating stuff. And it's a brilliant book. Definitely pick it up. It's called The Breakup Monologues and listen to her podcast. Uh, she's a really very interesting individual and um, and very lovely company. I think our listeners do, though. I think our listeners, I've seen it before on Twitter, the sort of people that, that maybe if they didn't know the person before they came on the podcast, they sort of follow them, mm. engage with their content and, and engage with them as well. And I think, so I think if you are if you knew who Rosie was, you knew this was going to be a good episode. If you hadn't heard of her before, I'm sure right now you are following her and in, uh, subscribing to her podcast and getting her book because uh, she's just fantastic. And we hope that really that's what our pod does sometimes. It sort of opens the door into, you know, other people for you to sort of bring into your sphere and your world who hopefully Absolutely. will enrich it, which Rosie does. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, it was a great episode. So thank you very much, Rosie. And I hope yes. you're having a good new year so far. Absolutely. Um, right, shall we read out our Twitter handles? If, you, if you'd mm. like to get in contact, obviously we read out tweets at the top of the show. Um, and if you'd like to tweet us and let us know, A, what Christmas movies you listen to, because this has now become very important to me. Um, and B, although I would say Muppet's Christmas Carol has to be number one. For me, it's Muppet's Christmas Carol, 
Die Hard, which is 100% a Christmas movie. Yeah. Um, and then basically all the crap Netflix films. That's, uh, that's how high Brian. Well, what, what about you? It's a Wonderful Life goes top for me because we watch it every oh, year good, when we yeah. when we put yeah. the tree up. So it's a bit of a tradition. Yeah. And I always weep um, yeah. at the end. It's it's just so heartwarming. Uh, yeah. And yeah, then Muppets. Yeah, Muppets yeah. would be up there. Yeah. And then, yeah. Ooh, what would be after? Die Hard, I, I agree. It's definitely a Christmas movie. I think the people that say it isn't can just... Go do well, one, quite frankly. It's set at Christmas. That makes yeah. it a Christmas movie. Why, There's why lots of references. Not... There's umpteen yeah. references to Christmas in it. He has the jumper with the ho, now I have a gun, ho, ho, ho. Yeah, like yeah, it's, exactly. it's, it's yeah, They're Christmas having a Christmas party. party. I mean, it's like the Toy Party Conference all over again. <laughs> not like, if they were having like, I don't know, an Easter party. Yeah. I mean, no one has an Easter. It'd be an Easter movie. Uh, it doesn't if if they were having a New Year's Eve party, it'd be a New Year's movie. Exactly. Like just, anyway, sorry, Nonsense. we are ranting. This is this is again something to go to Mark to. We need to talk to Mark about this. Yeah. Um. But anyway. Um. Yeah. Please do get in contact with us. Um. Our Twitter handle, Instagram handle, and Facebook handle. It's all the same. It is at Black Pod. And also, we should say, Jim, as ever with our podcast, there is a wonderful additional content that you can get at our Patreon. You're right, I'd forgotten to mention that at the top mm. of the show. But there is extra content from all our guests at patreon.com, which is p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com slash blank podcast, uh, including this episode uh, and including all our guests where we do an extra, could be a couple of minutes, sometimes it's as much as 15 minutes, mm. uh, extra content from our guests just for our patrons. And we love our patrons. We've got a hardy band of, of patrons uh, who we love loads and uh, we appreciate their support. So thank you very much. And they are mentioned in the show notes of every episode. Yeah, so if you want to be mentioned in the show notes, feel a little bit more special than the regular listeners. <laughs> we love our regular listeners as well. We like, do we, love all we love, the listeners. We love all of them. Yeah. yeah. But we are, you know, for anyone listening that isn't a patron, we we are we don't have a production company. We don't have any money. We are lit behind us. We are literally just two guys doing this yeah. off our own back. You might, <laughs> you might notice little adverts now and then. You know, that's how we try and make a bit of money uh, from, from doing this. So the patron actually really does help us keep going and keep mm. making the show because we are two freelance creatives just yeah. trying to survive in the world. Um, so, you know, if you've enjoyed it and you'd like to keep the show going essentially then please do chuck us a few quid via patreon because it's very appreciated thank you very much well jim it's the end of another episode we'll be back it again next indeed. week we are of course more uh, blankness <laughs> more more superb links yeah more smooth yeah. intros yeah. no mistakes <laughs> no mistakes whatsoever <laughs> no we they're, they're all left in anyway look i hope you have a good week i hope our listeners have a lovely week i hope Everyone's enjoying 2022, and here's hoping it's better than 2021. Although, let's face it, the bar is incredibly low. Yeah. Although, was 2021 better than 2020? No, it was much worse, I think, wasn't it? Mm. I don't, they were both bad. They're both absolute bin fires. We saw people they, more, though, didn't we? So maybe it was a little bit better, but yeah, still on true, a par maybe. of. Like, there was lots of shit things happened. <laughs> yeah. Um, clearly. But. We got to see each other a little bit more. So hopefully in 2022, we can see each other even more. Oh, can I do a quick plug? Oh my God, it's the worst time to do a plug. Literally, because right everyone's switched off. I'm doing, a, I'm, doing, I'm, I'm doing my live show that you came to see last year. Which Again, is very good. Oh, thank you very much. A few times this year at various festivals, starting with Vault Festival in London, in Waterloo, at a venue called Vaulty Towers, which is a great name for a venue, <laughs> um, on Wednesday, December the 26th at 6.30pm. Tickets are eight quid. I think, Bargain. slash slash pay what you want. Um, if you Nothing. want to pay a bit more, 
<laughs> it goes up, not down. Um, <laughs> and you can get them at jimdailycomedy.com slash geeks. So please do. It's a tiny venue. I think it seats 30 and I've already sold 10 or 11, I think. Oh, well, so, they're flying um, So crack on if you'd like to come along. But uh, it's a fun show. It's not a highbrow show. It's a fun, sweet, silly show about being a dad. So if you've it's a lovely it, show. And if you like football and parenting. A bit of football in there. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So it's, uh, but yeah, please do buy a ticket. I'm going to mention this again at the start of next week because I think it's the worst time to do it. But anyway, at least I remembered. And on well that note, thank you. <laughs> on that note, <laughs> thank you. Take care. Have a great week. We'll see you again soon. Goodbye. Oh, wrong one. up to mickey d's just for drinks oh yeah that's me nothing extra just perfection and a straw coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block because there are drinks then there are drinks from mcdonald's mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for a dollar 49 perfect with our classic fries price and participation may vary cannot be combined with any other offer ba-da-ba-ba-ba This is a Glass Box Media Podcast.